All right, so as always, I love to start with a good story. Like, it's just my way of getting comfortable on stage, and I love to help everyone else laugh and get comfortable as well. And so just setting up tonight, um, I was reminded of a story of when I was in college working a summer camp. And essentially, we were all given a group of 10 guys, and it was a leadership camp. And then there was just one kid out of this group that, let's just say, he was a fish out of water. Like, it's an athletic camp, and his mom did not read the flyer. Let's just say that. And so this poor kid, like, we got through the week, and uh, he went along with everything, but there was just a few things that he just didn't fit in. He just couldn't keep up, and throughout it, he kind of felt outcast. He had the butt of a couple jokes, and I mean, it just got to the point where by day four, this is a leadership camp, and we're supposed to do team building. And by the end of it, the goal is to do a trust fall. And so I don't know if any of you know what a trust fall is, but if you've never done it, it can be pretty nerve-wracking. So essentially, you get your group. They stand about six feet below you. They all lock arms like this. And then you get up there. You turn your back to them. You straighten your legs if you can. Usually they're shaking a little bit. Cross your arms, and then you fall back. And so it sounds pretty simple until you get to the fact of if you don't trust the people to catch you below, then no matter how much you want to fall, your body won't let you. And so as we go, like I said, the rest of the group had bonded all week. They were good athletes. They, they just, they worked together and they had gained that trust. And so each, each one of them got up there and time after time, they just, you know, without any thought, crossed their arms, fell back and the person caught them. And then there was Drew. Drew was already terrified of just the thought of getting up there. Apparently he was afraid of heights. So that didn't help this situation at all. But then as we get to the moment, we're leading up to it and right before that, some of the guys were just joking. They're like, I wonder how hard he can actually hit the ground. Like, and that's a terrible thing to joke about right before someone's about to fall into your arms. And so Drew gets up there and he's already shivering. He looks back and then we start the countdown. Three, two, one. And Drew just stands still. And the guys are like, are you gonna go? And finally, he just looks at him, he goes, absolutely not. I don't trust a single one of you. <laughs> and it was, it was funny because even after that, they flipped their entire attitude and tried to start encouraging him. It's like, come on, man, we've been in it all week, we're here for you. But all Drew knew was the things that he heard, the ill intentions of what if we drop him? All he knew is that he was the outcast, it didn't quite fit in. Do they even like me? At one point, he looked at one of the kids and said those exact words. I don't even think you like me. You haven't talked to me this entire week. Why would I trust you? And so I'd love to finish that story and tell you that Drew got the courage and fell. But come hell or high water, Drew wasn't falling off that uh, cliff. And so, like, the point of that story, though, is that we all trust in something. And in that moment... Drew reflected on what was said, what he saw in the rearview mirror, and he chose to trust himself. Drew wasn't gonna go off that cliff because he didn't think that they had his best interests at heart. He didn't think that they were gonna protect him. And so that just leads into why I love this setup of this series the last two weeks. We talked about God is good, and then we talked about God is love. And in my mind, when you add those two together, they automatically equal God is trustworthy because of the consistency and so much but I love those first two weeks because for me, they just set a great foundation. Because when I think about it, if I don't think you're good, 
then it doesn't matter what you do in my life, whatever you say, I'm just gonna be honest, I'm a, I'm a skeptic. And so I'm like, I don't trust it. I'm like, something's off, that guy's not a good guy. But then I even lean on like the importance of God is love. And just thinking of what it's like for someone to love you, and then I'll even shrink that down to just them liking you. If I don't think you like me, I'm never gonna allow you to lead my life. Because no matter what, I'm never gonna trust where you're leading me. I'm never gonna believe that you have my best interest at heart. And even more so, I just don't trust that you're gonna actually take care of me. I'm like, what's the plot? What is the scheme? Where are you taking me? And so in that, I think it just sets up the perfect point of, for all of us, those two things are what bring us comfort. And ultimately, we have to put our trust somewhere as we navigate life. And so what do you trust? To trust someone is to believe that he or she has your best interest in mind, that the person will protect you from harm and is reliable. And so tonight, for those of you that take notes, I set this up a little bit different than what uh, we usually do. I know we usually do kind of a three-point system and then a so what, and tonight I just kind of built together two large perspectives. And so just follow along with me, take notes as you, as you see fit, but um, I'm just gonna start here. And it's that the dilemma is that from the moment the snake entered the garden, he presented what we still battle today. And that's just a small deception of doubt. When you think back to it, he didn't go in and maneuver anyone. He didn't do anything specifically. He simply just whispered in the ear, why can't you eat this fruit? What is he withholding from you? What is out there that he hasn't given you? And even though Adam and Eve had complete comfort in that moment, he introduced doubt which led to them eating the fruit, which ultimately led to the fall and continues to lead to our fall today. And so for me, when I look at that, we doubt, when we doubt, we begin to trust what we, we begin to trust what we can understand or control. And so there's a theologian named Dallas Willard who sets up a model of three kingdoms. And so the three kingdoms are this. There's the kingdom of God, where God, God is reigning. It is present wherever. What God wants done is done. It is the range of God's effective will. God's reign is all around you. It is the natural home of the soul. Matthew uses the, uses the term, the kingdom of the heavens, to emphasize that the kingdom of God is not far off. And so we have the kingdom of God, and then we have the kingdom of Satan. And it is Satan in action, directly and indirectly. It is where what Satan wants done is done. And then the third one, which really just brought to mind, is the kingdom of me. It's where we choose to be our own God. We choose to be in control. It's where what I want done is done. It is where what I can do to control directly or indirectly, my purse, my car, my body, whatever it is, it's where we choose to control the outcome. Our opportunity is to bring our kingdom into God's kingdom, or the opposite can be said. So tonight, as far as just a point, I wanna start here with the kingdom of me. My first point tonight is that we are terrible masters of our own kingdom. We are terrible masters of our own kingdom. And so Proverbs 14, verses 12 through 14, somewhat pointed out, and it says this, there's a way that appears to be right, but in the end, it leads to death. Even in laughter, the heart may ache. 
and rejoicing may end in grief. That verse alone just says so much about even in the midst of laughter, the heart may ache and rejoicing may end in grief. It's just saying what you see isn't always what is actually below the scene, right? All of us have walked in different emotions and sat there and made it seem like we were in the, just thriving in life. Like it, this is the best time and in reality, we were just dying inside. And so I think of this, as an unbeliever or even as a believer that wanders in doubt, we choose who or what we trust. We choose the kingdom we serve. And so just the other day, I was reading a devotional by David Tripp, and he says this, we are made in the likeness of God, which means we don't just live by instinct like animals. We are value-oriented, goal-oriented, purpose-oriented. That means our kingdom is based on what we see as important, and we all lose sight of what is truly important in eternity. I love that he points that out because it already sets up the measure of when we are our own gods, like we can't be pure just in the fact of none of us value this world the same. We all have different desires, we all have different goals, values, and just purpose behind the things that we do. And so it's never gonna measure up of everything that I desire and think that is good, and then I measure it up to you. And so in that, there's already conflict, right? And so it continues on and we look at it, it says, we are always in pursuit of some vision, some desire or some dream. And many of these are God given. They're not just bad, every desire isn't bad, but they can be perverted just through a small bit of doubt. God may have given you the vision that you were gonna graduate and somewhere in there you started to panic when things got bad and that little bit of doubt led you to cheat on a test just to secure that you're gonna pass, right? Chasing the desire to be known suddenly becomes your reasoning for changing your complete personality. You leave everything that you once knew at home, that you once were, to become the person that pleases just the world. The desire to be, to be loved, all of us can attend to that. We find ourselves in relationships and we just, we shrink in ourselves to become that of what we think the other person wants. And then we wonder why it doesn't work. For some of us, it's the desire to just, you know, have the satisfaction of being right. And so we find ourselves in pointless arguments that we throw sharp knives just to make sure we win, just for the satisfaction of saying, I was right, right? And all these things aren't innately bad, but then the little bit of doubt the little bit of action that's thrown towards it ultimately ends with, with someone's expense, right? We find ourselves that everyone in this room can reflect on a moment that our control led to the comfort or ease for us at the expense of others. For me, I just think of, of myself, uh, specifically my freshman year. And this was a very rough time for me that I didn't realize until I was actually on, on the other side of it. And so for me, going back into high school, my junior year, my dad chose to completely walk out of my life. And we had just a big fallout argument that completely destroyed my construct of a spiritual life or anything. Because for me, when I just read through the Bible, when I heard different messages, I constantly heard heavenly father. And just the word father angered me 
because I couldn't understand how a heavenly father could be good when my earthly father completely left. I couldn't understand the love that was there because I was comparing it to what was here. And I think in turn, I did what a lot of us do. And I put the character of someone's sin here on God because I blamed him for it. I blamed him for my dad walking out. I blamed him for all the pain and anguish that I was going through. And so in that, I turned away from him and I chose to be my own God. I chose to chase my own passion, my own desire. And so that led to my freshman year being introduced to a wrestling team that we still laugh because our coach called us a drinking team with a wrestling problem. We were really good at wrestling, but we were really good at drinking. And so I say that because we had fun. I was chasing pleasure and it came from going out to parties and it filled that desire in the moment. It allowed me to be known. It allowed me to have so much fun just in the moment. And then I even think about it from just the angle of just satisfaction of my emotions, which led me to drugs and alcohol that in a moment you could flip a switch and completely turn your mood. And it worked for so long. I continued to dive into it. And then again, chasing more pleasure. It turned into seeking relationships, sleeping around, deceiving those around me, all so that I could just find peace. And all in the midst of that, I found myself completely lost, confused. I noticed that I had hurt others, and even in turn, I had hurt myself. And then I'm just thankful for the moment that came after that where I can truly say like in one moment, I gave up the idol of wrestling in school that I thought, you know what, if I can just succeed in this, I'm gonna get a job. It's gonna lead to success. I can control the outcome. And then in the midst of me getting lost and confused, I remember walking into my coach's office and quitting the team. And then I went out to a party that weekend and I was drinking to the point where you could notice that it was no longer fulfilling the pleasure that brought happiness. It was just pure misery of constantly chasing it. And then I remember there was one girl who constantly came up to me at this party. And she said two things. Are you okay? Do you need a ride or anything else? And then will you go to church with me? That's the last thing you wanna hear when you're doing something you're not supposed to do is will you go to church with me? But I'm so thankful for that because even in the midst of me just being at my lowest of lows, I'll never forget the next morning, even though she tried to call, I ignored her. Long story short, she climbed up a fire escape and actually drug me to Life Church on Norfolk Expressway. I'll never forget it because I sat there and immediately just realized how far away I'd been. I heard a message about just a man who had gained everything of this world and then still lost his soul. And then for me, I knew exactly where, where I was. And I'm so thankful that God was there in that moment to redeem me because it led to a long path that eventually got me here. And so in that, I just think of, have you ever found yourself in control and suddenly you're worse off than you were before? Like really think about it. I know I have countless times and the truth is none of us set out to harm ourselves. None of us set out to lose direction. None of us set out to harm others, but we all have at some point living as our own masters trusting ourselves. Anyone remember uh, just a small situation like this where maybe your mom told you, hey, don't touch the oven. 
is hot. All right? Anyone know where this is going? Bad Trayvon walked right up, put his hand on it, and then said, ow, like, I just got burned. Think about, even in that moment, again, I chose to follow what I trusted. And I hurt myself, even though I had the direction. I had someone who was guiding me towards what I needed to do, and I still ignored it. And so, I just wanna use a quick verse that, um, this is in Ecclesiastes, and it's believed to be written by Solomon. And so this is a great king, and that's important to know because you get to see the access that he had to the world. He could get anything he wanted, and that's exactly what he says he did. And so in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 10, Solomon uh, says, I did not myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had told to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. And then a couple verses later, he continues on in verse 17 and says, so I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous. To me, all of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. And in that, He goes on for 12 chapters and he mentions advancement, riches, wisdom, pleasure, and time, all is meaningless. And I just think about it, he he points out that it's never enough. And I mean, just think about it. For some of you that have struggled through addiction, you realize that the, the big point is that the deception is that, hey, I'm always gonna be able to chase this high and then it starts to to fail you. You realize it isn't consistent. You realize you're just chasing something that you can never get again. You're always chasing after that hunger. And the reality is we're not meant to chase. I mean, I just think about it even from a physical sense. We're not meant to constantly run. At some point, you're gonna get exhausted. At some point, you're gonna get tired. And at some point, you're gonna have to stop. And so how much are you gonna chase? How much money are you gonna chase until you realize it's never enough? How much pleasure? You see in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13 through 14, we see the author come back and he, he puts it in his conclusion. Now all has been heard, here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandment, for this is the duty of mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. It is all meaningless without God. And so I just think on like the power of someone who is in the position of a king that he says, I gained as many wives as I wanted. I sought as much wisdom, as much pleasure. He had everything in the world and he said it was all meaningless. Life was meaningless. He hated life to the point where he said, you know, our duty is to serve God. Without it, you will always find it meaningless. And so for me, I I really just sit in on on this thought is that we see our kingdom as a shortcoming of good in our own eyes because none of us set out for evil. It's small rebellious acts that grow to consistent actions. And so in this, there's a plot that Solomon somewhat pointed out, and it's a choice. We can serve ourselves and ultimately 
just in our sin nature, it's gonna lead to building the foundation of Satan's kingdom. That's the true outcome of, of, our, of building our kingdom. And then they're submitting to God's will where we can truly be the ones that build God's kingdom. And so we have a choice to trust and build one of two kingdoms, God's kingdom or Satan's kingdom. And so who will you trust? God uses people that trust him to build his kingdom. And so my second point for tonight is that God is trustworthy. There's nothing big to it, it's just that God is trustworthy. A.W. Tozer has a, a quote that I think just speaks to this so well. And he says, we can hold a correct view of truth only by daring to believe everything God has said about himself. And so I'll read that again. We can hold a correct view of truth only by daring to believe everything God has said about himself. I love this because trust is built in the rearview mirror. We don't just meet someone and automatically trust them. It's daring. Somewhere in there, you have to make a choice to follow in that. And in this, I love it because it points out that sometimes we have to look at just the things that are already set in stone, all right? Sometimes we have to look at the character of what we hear, what we see, or even who else trusts this person. And the benefit of this is that we can look and know that God is trustworthy because he wrote his entire word through the people that he led. We see the countless accounts of him being faithful, the countless times that he showed up and fulfilled his promise. And so tonight I wanna lock in on two stories. The first one is this, the story of Joseph. I don't have time and you don't want me to, to have time to read through the entire story because it's Genesis 37 through 50. It's a lot of words that uh, I'm not gonna read because I'd butcher, but I'd love to just simplify it to give you an idea of the story. And so it says, Jacob's, Jacob is the father of 11 sons and Joseph is the baby. And he is known as the favorite. And just in case my mom is watching this like she usually is, we both know that I can relate. My two sisters won't admit it, but I'm my mom's favorite. Like, there's no question about it. But it's okay. But then as we go on, it talks about amongst his brothers, Joseph is hated. And then even more so, it says that God gives him a vision that one day he will rule over them. And this immediately angers them because they just take a step back that the youngest brother is saying that he's gonna rule over them. It's kind of arrogant if you don't know the, the context of it. Even his father is taken back, but it says he stays silent. So much to the point that they hate it that he's the favorite. They hate that he has this great vision that he's gonna rule over them. And so they set out to harm him. It says originally they planned to kill him. And then as the brothers just went back and forth, they ended up actually just selling him into slavery. And so immediately after God gives Joseph this great vision, in a short time afterwards, we immediately see him going to suffering. And then it says, as he was sold into slavery, he ultimately was sold to Potiphar, who was one of the Egyptian Pharaoh's officers. And so in that, he's now serving in the kingdom, right? And it says he found great favor as he continued to be faithful to the Lord. He trusted God and even in there, like he started out as a slave and then was working for one of the officials. And so he trusted God, things are going well. 
Then as you continue on in the story, we see that Joseph was actually a pretty handsome man, one that was desirable by Potiphar's wife to the point where she plotted to sleep with him. And Joseph knew what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And so it says in that moment when she came to him, he quickly ran away so fast that his clothes ripped off and she actually had his robe in her hand. And so when Potiphar returned, she says, he tried to rape me. And so Potiphar's hands were kind of tied. And so now we see Joseph again, he's being faithful and now he's thrown into prison because of the lies of Potiphar's wife. And so it continues on and it says, even while in prison, he was faithful to the Lord. He still had the gift of interpreting dreams. And so he's interpreting the dreams of the prisoners while, while he's uh, in prison. And one of them is the cupbearer for the king that ultimately would return to the king. But it says like, hey, I'll remember you one day. And as soon as the cupbearer got out, it says he forgot about him. And then it took two years for him to remember. And it came at the moment when the king needed a dream interpreted. And suddenly the cupbearer said, hey, I remember a guy that I was in prison with. He interpreted all of our dreams and he, got them, he did them good. And so suddenly Joseph is summoned and he interprets a dream of a great harvest for many years. And then he also interprets the latter side of the dream, which is that there will be a great famine. And because of the way that he interpreted this dream, the king trusted him so much that he elevated him to be second only to the king. And so again, we see that because Joseph trusted in the Lord, he continued to be faithful. He was now elevated again to a, to a high position to the point where he was in charge of selling the grain that they had now harvested. And so you fast forward through it, there's a lot of dialogue between uh, his brothers coming in, but ultimately Jacob, Joseph's father, sends his 10 brothers to come and buy grain because during the famine, they still needed to eat. And they walk up to their brother that they sold into slavery, not even recognizing him. And so there, it continues on to the point where once he sends them back, they return with gifts and the vision that he once had is fulfilled because they come back with presents and gifts and bow down to him. And so that happens in Genesis 43, 26. And then we continue on just again through the dialogue. In Genesis 45, Joseph tells his brothers finally who he is. And he told them, don't be distressed and angry with yourselves. God sent me here to save your lives by a great deliverance. How powerful is that? Like he knows everything that his brothers have done, attempting to kill him, attempting to sell him into slavery, all the, the harm that they once caused, and he still sees the perspective of God sent me to save your life. And then we fast forward to Genesis 50, verses 19 through 20, and I think this is just the highlight of the story. When he tells them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. There is so much that can be just broken down in Joseph's story. And for me, I start with this. In this story, we see God reveal a call on Joseph's life, a destination, and then immediately he's thrown into slavery. It could be so easy for Joseph to look at his suffering and blame God, to say, God, you tricked me. 
to do like so many of us, when we don't see the full outcome, we just see the suffering that we're in. We see the current situation. It could have been so easy for him to say, like, God, this is your fault. But instead, he realized that it wasn't. We often place God's character on the sin of our world that affects us. Joseph could have blamed God for his brother's actions. He could have blamed God for Potiphar's wife's actions, but it wasn't God who set out to harm him. It was simply just the sin nature of those on this earth. And so Joseph saw God was trustworthy as he was with him every step of the way. I mean, constantly he's thrown forward and then he takes a step back and he still trusts God. He goes forward, takes another step back and he still trusts God. And I just look at it this way. Only God can orchestrate a plan that goes through so many obstacles but still works for our good. God is trustworthy in that he is all-knowing and he can take the worst situation and build it for his glory, right? God already knew everything that was gonna happen in Joseph's life. His all-knowing power tells me that he knows everything past, present, and future. And so what is a surprise to us? What looks weary to us it's nothing to God. He's already set out every plan. So why grow weary in trusting him? When we look at the rearview mirror in our own lives, we see how much God really is in control. The beautiful thing about aging is that when you look back, all of us can say that we're here and there's somewhere down the road that we don't understand how God managed to take this and bring us to where we are today. All of us have some type of just mess in our lives that we once thought was hopeless. And then we got to the other side and we're like, why did I ever worry about this? At one point we were in middle school and we thought it was the end of the world on whether or not these people knew who we were on whether they loved us and cared about us. And then we get to hindsight and we're like, who cares? You don't even know most of those people, right? We care so much about the current moment and then as we continue to grow through life, when we see different people exit, when we see our lives go past those situations, we realize in the rearview mirror just how much God's love is protecting us. How much of your life has worked out far better than you could ever imagine? I mean, I think for myself of just the path of life that ended up getting me here. I never thought in a million years that I'd ever be on a stage being able to speak about God. It never was in my plan. It was never something that I even knew I desired. That's how good God is. He places things in our lives that we never even think to ask for because we don't even know how good it can be. Yet he is such a good and loving God that he manages to, to put things in front of us that we never even knew we wanted. How beautiful is that? And so Proverbs 3, verse five through six says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight. And when I read that, I always found myself in conflict with the last part of it. He will make your path straight. And again, I think it comes from our limited understanding and view. What's straight in God's eyes isn't straight in ours. All we can see is what what is eye level. We see every obstacle. We see every bit of fear. We see every bit of doubt. We see everything that's in front of us and we question, 
Can I make it past this? Can I get through this? Can I make my way around this? And then we look at it from God's view when he already sees the final destination. He already sees where he's placed you. And he's just asking you to trust him. And then there's one more story that most of us know, and it's just, I think his trustworthiness is shown through just Jesus himself. We see time and time again, Jesus rely on the Father in prayer, where he submits his trust by going to the Father before he makes any actions. He reaches out to the Lord to calm storms, and he even has to trust him in believing that death is the right path. Because we see right before his death in the Garden of Gethsemane, when it talks about his anguish. It talks about from his flesh, the fear of is this the way? Is this the only way? That's the beautiful part about God making himself human. We get to see, even in that, even in that Jesus deal with that little bit of doubt. But in that, we see him cry out to the Lord. We see him trust in the love that God has for him. We see him trust in the relationship that God has shown up time and time again. And so we see him rely on that to make the ultimate sacrifice and go to the cross and die. And so I think that says so much about the trust that Jesus had in him, but I think it also says so much in how we can trust God. I know I can trust a God that makes a a completely selfless sacrifice that was only in our best interest to protect us from the, the just punishment of our sin. And so in that, when I look back, I just, I completely see it, that God's word stands as truth to his trustworthiness. There's no more to it. If you look in the rear view, you look at the example that he's done in a number of lives, we see the consistency of his trustworthiness. So what do we do with this? I have three questions as far as the so what's. The first one is this, who will you trust? The second one is what keeps you from trusting God? And then the third is what part of your life do you need to trust God with? And so before I send us into 120 seconds to really ponder on this, I just wanna share with you one more thought. And that's this, we have a God who has proven consistent, good, and loving. And then we have everything else that we sometimes put our trust in of this world, our idols, ourselves. For some of us, it's just the hopelessness of nothing. And then I wanna share this story with you because I choose to trust God. And I really lean in on this and it's in Mark nine. And it tells the story of a father who asked Jesus to heal his son who was possessed by a demon and constantly would just throw him to the ground and he'd just convulse. And so this father, he cared about his son so much that he approached Jesus and he says, heal my son, but he says, if you can. And in that, Jesus' reply, he even, he's taken aback. He even mentions like, how much more do I have to walk with you in unbelief? And so he addresses the crowd, but he says, like, if you can, and then he responds, everything is possible for one who believes. And so I love that, but even more, I love the response of the father. 
because it is one of the most humble responses that we can ever say. The boy's father says, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. If you're anything like me, it's a daily battle to wholly trust God. And it's not due to his error, it's all in myself. And so I constantly think on that. But for me, I'm gonna choose to trust God. And then in the midst of that, I'm gonna submit myself in prayer. In the same way that this, this guy said, help me in my unbelief. God, help me in my unbelief. Help me in the moments that I don't trust you. Help me in the moments that I don't see what is beyond what's just in front of me. Help me in the moments that I don't just wholly trust you. Help me overcome the moments that I choose to be my own master. And so for me, I will continue to build my trust in God through submitting to his kingdom in obedience as best as I can and trust that his promise is true, that through Jesus on the cross, if we submit to him in belief, that we confess our sins, that we're forgiven, that the promise is complete. And so I don't know what you're gonna trust, but I know what I will. Will you join me? And so as we sit on just 120 seconds, I just want you to really think on these questions. Who will you trust? Who keeps you from trusting God? And what part of your life do you need to trust God with?